out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, uh, we're going back slightly to the beginning of popular music. Yes, it's 1958 and an uh, interview I just done recently with Robin Mayhew, who was in The Presidents. Um, they became part of the in crowd. And then he worked with people like Tucky Buzzard and then, interestingly, toured with David Bowie through the Ziggy Stardust tour of 1972 to 73 and did hundreds of tours, um, dates in the UK, Japan and America and then went on to work with such people as Lou Reed, David Essex, um, Russ Ballard and also, yes, The Vibrators and then, interestingly, The Passions in the 1980s. Um, them who did... I'm in love with a German film star, which we'll talk about in the uh, interview. But I won't spoil everything because it's all going to be discussed very late, uh, a bit later. Well, in, literally in the next couple of minutes. But um, so, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, trying to actually get either the landline to work or various other forms of communication, we settled on the mobile. And then um, I got to that point where I said, Robin, tell us about how the presidents got together and started. And this was his response. Robin, take it away. 1958, so we got together, and um, uh, the, the drummer, um, Phil Cunliffe, his father worked in London somewhere, and he he used to go to the Bermondsey um, Working Man's Club, and um, we got a we got a gig before we'd even sort of really finished getting a set list, and uh, we managed to scrape, scrape it all together, and uh, went up to. Bermondsey in, in uh, East London and did our first gig. And Glenn Johns, who was a schoolmate of mine, who's now the legendary producer, did the Eagles, the Stones, bit of Get Back by the Beatles. He, he used to come with us like as a, you know, like a, a buddy to come along. And uh, when he left school, he started working as a tape-op in uh, IBC Studios in London, and uh, he used to invite us up there if we had a weekend free uh, to, to have a go at recording. But that's what we did. Yes. And it gradually developed from there. And um, our original singer left. He went into the RAF, the RAF. And um, uh, the, the, our original lead guitarist left. He went up to um, Durham University. So I took over lead guitar. We had a new singer, and um, we had a new drummer as well. <laughs> it was quite tra transitory, all the, the members. But then uh, we we were doing a, a, a private family um, party, and um, we just did this song, Candyman, and I just got into a different rhythm, and it just worked, and Glyn was there. He said, fuck me, you know, let's, uh, let's record this. So we did, and he gave it to Decca, and Decca signed us immediately. We had a photo shoot and everything. It was amazing. And, um, and Decca played it to Brian Paul and the Tremolos, uh, who were their top band of the day, and they loved it and also cut it. So we had to release ours as a B-side, right? which was very, dis very disappointing for us all. And uh, the rhythm guitarist and singer left in disappointment, and I took over singing, and uh, we went on from there. We did a follow-up. Um, uh, she said, yeah, I don't know if you've seen that video on YouTube. No, I haven't. But, but... <laughs> oh, well, there's a little story there, because the Stones, who we were good friends with, and we let them play at our club in Sutton, the Red Lion, um, uh, Ian Jones, who uh, Ian Stewart, sorry, who was like the sixth Stone, um, one of the founding members, but he, he wasn't he, he wasn't part of the band um, that toured. Um, he begged us to let his let the Stones come about the Red Line, and that's our version of of this song. She said, "Yeah," and we recorded it, and Decca got it. We never heard a thing. And then the Stones released their 
Adam Pegg's album and what's on it? She said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, that was, so we never heard anything until 2018 when I got an email from Los Angeles saying they'd found the acetate and it was released that June. So I got the band together with, an av- with a total age older than the Rolling Stones and we put the video together of She Said Yeah on YouTube. Blimey, that's an amazing... <laughs> that's a very brief history, uh, David. <laughs> <laughs> what a history. I can't, I didn't... I know you'd have to be one music slight nerd to know that story, but that is still quite some story, isn't it? As they yeah, say... Old um, uh, Tony Blackburn um, on uh, Sounds of the Sixties, he played uh, She Said Yeah um, and told the story... Uh, which he had heard. And um, also before that, Brian Matthew, the late Brian Matthew, who used to do Sounds of the Sixties on a Saturday morning, told the story about Candyman. So there's a bit of fame there, but we never made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a tricky one. So, as, you know, because you started, you know, it was 50, 58 you started. So obviously, my God, the Beatles were still in nappies, version, wasn't it? And then obviously, you know, the band went until the mid 60s. I mean, what I've noticed with a lot of bands that I spoke to and interviewed, they, they have a five year narrative. And this is often in the 80s where, you know, they'd get together for 12 months, they'd make a sound. At that stage, you know, John Peel would give them a play and then a, there would be a session, you know, with Dale Griffith probably producing it. And then they'd get the first album, things going well. The second album, that's when things weren't, weren't going so well. And if anybody ever toured America, they would be, um, yes, it would be a bit of a disaster. So you're, you, you sort of had a very similar time. By the mid-60s, that's when the band finished, wasn't it? Yeah, 65, yeah. Yeah, after we recorded, she said, yeah, and we'd never heard a thing from Decca. Um, we were very dispirited. We just said, that's the point. Yeah, if we'd written our own stuff, David, we would have, uh, it would have been different. Uh, it, I mean, I've written songs now in my 80s. Um, if I'd written them then, well, I probably wouldn't be here, you know. Um, <laughs> um, yes. uh, you know, but there we go. I know. But uh, I'll send, if you like, I'll send you, I, I, I made a, I, I, made an album CD called Shallow and Deeper with some, some of my songs on. I'll send it to you, if you like, if you give us an address. Oh, I will. This is, this is brilliant, yeah, actually. Email, email me an, an address at some point, and I'll put a copy in the post here. Oh, thank you very much. Look, then I was going to say, and then what happens, you know, for so the band by then has finished, but obviously you know, popular music, psychedelic rock. It's all about to appear and happen. So you'd obviously had your apprenticeship with the, with with sort of being in the music industry and being in a band for the last seven years. So then how did you navigate the rest of the 60s? Uh, well, I got married in 66 and we emigrated to South Africa. Um, and I, we got fed up out there after about a year with apartheid and all that dreadful. So we came back and I was jobless. And I, so I looked up my old buddies and Glyn and things like that. And um, there was this, um, this guy, um, Nicky Graham, who had a band called Tucky Buzzard being produced by Bill Wyman, um, who was staying in the house the Stones used to rent in Epsom in Surrey. And um, he, uh, he said, uh, I said, oh, I'm, I, I've got to get a job. He said, well, we need a a roadie or a sound engineer at the moment. So he, uh, so I said, well, okay, I'm up for it. So they took delivery of a new PA system and uh, I set it up and got into work in it, you know. I knew nothing about it, David. But I, I set it all up and got it working and then we did some rehearsals and we did a short tour of Europe and then a short tour of the States. Came back and... They signed with Tony DeFries, who had just signed David Bowie. And uh, so it was like a, a really weird thing. I didn't, I, I knew Space Oddity, yes. Bowie, but I didn't anything else. And um, DeFries, that um, uh, Bowie was going to do a, a demo for some record executives um, of uh, uh, some new material. And um, why don't Tucky Buzzard do a little set to begin with? Uh, so we said, yeah, okay. 
So we went to the Camden Country Club and uh, set up the PA and uh, we did a, a set which was super loud, I mean, because they were pretty heavy metal tucky buzzards. <laughs> and, uh, and then we, we couldn't take the gear out because, you know, it was, we had to wait till it was all over. And then David went on, I think it was Rick Wakeman and, and uh, Mick Ronson, um, just three of them. And uh, it, they used their own sound system and everything, and it was dreadful. <laughs> and uh, it was really awful. It, feedback and howl, you couldn't really hear anything, even though there were only three of them. And uh, it finished, then we were packing up, and, and I had a knock on the shoulder, and it was Angie Bowie, and she said, uh, come and talk to David. So I went over and he said, how the bloody hell did I hear what your singer was singing with all that noise going on? I said, well, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, it is skill and we laughed and all that. He said, well, we're going to rehearse a new band and um, going to go out on the road. Will you come and have a go at the rehearsal? So I said, yeah. So we went to the Beckenham Rugby Club and I set the PA up and he came in with his new hairstyle and looking totally different uh, and the band and they set up. One point which is important uh, and I, uh, I say this in those days in the um, late 60s early 70s to have a big stack of, uh, of guitar cabinet speakers behind you was the norm you know. Yeah. But I always, I always made Tucky Buzzard only have them at, you know, not one on top of the other, but side by side. And I said to Mick Ronson and Trevor Boulder, Let, let's have the cabinets all down low so the vocal mic is, is, is more pure. And anyway, they started and they did about four numbers and Barry just loved it. And uh, he put his arm around me and he said, no, let's go for it. So we started... They did rehearsals and things, and we were, we were off, and I was a sound engineer for all those gigs. <laughs> yes. So this was kind it of was his... It was Yes, a roller coaster ride. So this is kind of like, is this between Space Oddity, Hunky Dory, and Ziggy, or had he done Hunky Dory by then? Oh, he'd done Hunky Dory, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, this was, this was uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spider from Mars and Aladdin Sane. So... When we did the rehearsal, uh, it, it was like Hang On To Yourself, Ziggy Stardust, and one other uh, track or a couple of other songs. It was all from the Ziggy Stardust album. Yeah, so he'd got the image and he'd got the look. And obviously Angie Bowie at this stage had been sort of hugely instrumental in developing him as just from being a bit of a fae folk singer, strumming away with oh, his curly she, hair. No, she... Despite all the, you know, not bad press, but, you know, other part of Angie, she, as far as David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust went, I mean, she was instrumental. She got the lighting guys together. They were called Heavy Lights, and they were doing uh, Mark Bolan and T-Rex. And she got them to come in. She got me and the PA together, you know, and she was the driving force behind it. You know, she really did a, a great deal. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think a lot of people realise that, you know, if it wasn't for Angie and it wasn't for Tony DeFries and possibly Lawrence Mayers, Bowie would have just been strumming in the back of a pub, not really knowing, not being particularly anything different to anybody else. It was those people who, yeah. who sort of knocked him into shape, so to speak. And plus, you know, that fascination, fascination with Lindsay Kemp and the art world, because, you know, there must yeah. be, like now, hundreds of thousands of bands, but nothing stands out until some, there's that, I don't know, the Trogs moment in the studio where they talk about you know, putting some fairy dust on the, on the recording <laughs> session. You probably heard it, but it's one of those classic moments. But, you know, like a lot of things, you just think, well, it's, competent but i can't say it's amazing but then those people behind him seem to just 
do th- something which was quite extraordinary. And obviously your, your your sort of ability to come in and sort out his sound as well as Angie's ability to dress him better and Tony DeFries to make him a superstar. I mean, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It, it, it was perhaps... Uh, and, and David, when we were on tours, uh, I mean, we never toured Europe, but, you know, Japan, America, the UK... Those tours, the the camaraderie, the sort of social part of it between the band, the crew, management, and all the rest of it, it, it was all striving for this thing. And it was a wonderful thing for me. I saw a man, David Bowie, achieve his ambition. It was, you could see him day after day, just like eyes popping out of his head. Um, with excitement, the way it was going, you know, what's happening? You know, it's just amazing. Yeah. And we started off the first gig, the Toby Jack in Tolworth, you know, um, pub with about, I don't know, 15 people there. And uh, then a couple of universities, these Debisham Hall in Epsom, these little rooms, you know, and then onto venues. And it was just amazing. The, the, how it developed yes because because that tour because i just realized this is the 72 tour that starts yeah toby jug and then it goes to the london imperial college then brighton you basically for sort of the whole year no from from sort of january right through to actually there is the whole year because you do you do the first nine months in the uk then the next three months in the usa and that's kind of there's hardly a day off. But also, and this is kind of something that I found quite interesting, when you did play Norwich, you did two nights that, you did, you did two shows that one evening. So it was a pretty relentless tour, wasn't it? Oh, tell me about it, yeah. Oh, it was. It was absolutely flat out, you know. But, we, but there was no bad feeling whatsoever. It was all, um, here we go. It was... A wonderful experience and certainly something which uh, will live with me forever you know it's just it was just an amazing uh, you know experience to be on yeah i mean there was literally there was I've, I've got the set uh, not the set list i've got the kind of tour schedule here i mean that's absolutely phenomenal i mean you would have killed most bands nowadays wouldn't you so how did you manage to keep that going for such an intense i mean because then you go into 73 Right through up to sort of October. Well, not quite October. No. Well, there's a there's a gap, isn't no, there? July. Yeah, July we finished, didn't we? July. You've, you finished at Hammersmith in July. Then you come back and July. do the marquee. We in... did the uh, the uh, 1980 floor show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you did the whole lot. My God. So during that time, I mean, there was obviously there was the recording, not the recording, but there was the writing process of doing Aladdin Sane as well. So how did you know? You said there was amazing camaraderie in that time. I mean, it, it must oh. have had amazing stamina and professionalism to keep that going without any complete oh, yeah. casualty. So did you, I mean, and this is kind of, you're pioneers at this stage in, in the world of rock and roll, aren't you? You know, it hasn't been done for that many years. I mean, 10 years before that was 1963 or 62. I mean, you know, that, that, that you had to learn pretty quickly to get all that gear and all that sort of routine together and, and to keep the yeah. show on the road. Uh, absolutely, yeah, it was amazing, and and I mean things like you know the the track Gene Genie. Yes. I mean that was on a Greyhound bus. You know, Willie Palin, the late Willie Palin, who was my sidekick for the sound system. Um, he uh, he was playing guitar with David at the front. Dun 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 dun, dun, dun. and so the song developed. You know, and we got to New York and and actually yeah, record it. Sort of making it up. It was just crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's at the same time, I mean, it's kind of well documented because obviously during that time, you know, by the end, David decides to say, you know, that this is the last gig we'll ever do. I mean, did you get a feeling, did you at the time or retrospectively could see that was happening or was it a real surprise to you or did you think something has changed during that tour? No, it, it, it didn't come as a surprise to me. It was a little bit of a surprise. I, I got a little bit of... Uh, I was at my uh, 
sound desk and during the interval I had a leap on the intercom and it was Peter Hansley, the, the stage tech. He said, he said, I don't know what's going on, but I think David's going to split it up tonight. So then it happened. So I was pre-warned. But to me, it was the most sensible thing he could do. He couldn't go walking around in those that outfit anymore. He, he, you know, we'd done it. I mean, we'd saturated that. And here he was on a springboard ready to go in another direction now. And uh, it didn't bother me because, you know, I had all the equipment and all the rest of it. I'd built up equipment and added stuff to the original PA system we had, bought it all and set up ground control, my own PA company, and went on with Mott the Hooper and Lou Reed and off we went, you know. Yes. So there was no... It, it it didn't bother me. I wished him all the best, you know. Yeah. And how did it sort of develop? Because obviously, you know, everybody's got quite big characters and you had the band, you know, Mick Ronson, Woody and Trevor. And then you had sort of Mike Garson come in. Then you had also Angie Bowie as well and then Tony DeFries. I think Lawrence at that stage had sold his, his kind of deal with uh, David to um, Main Man, which was Tony DeFries' company. Yeah. Which was quite an extraordinary group of people because they had certain members from the Andy Warhol kind of brigade there who were quite extreme. And um, yeah. I can't remember, was it a guy, guy who was in a, a play called Pork, Tony v- um, Vedetta? Oh, God, I can't remember his name. I did an interview with him. Tony Zanetta, yeah. Oh, that's it. Zanetta. He's got, yeah, Zanetta. It's got Z, isn't it? So, they were, I mean, it must have felt like quite an extreme party. I mean, it must have felt quite a... A gang of people. Yeah, yeah. It was, as I said, it it was just a all striving for this one goal. It was just a a wonderful experience for everybody involved. I mean, uh, just fascinating. Yes, well, absolutely. I, I, I just, as I said earlier, and I'd never forget it. It was just, uh, you know, oh. Yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> it is the way. And you must be pleased because at that stage you also had the photographer Mick Rock who was beginning his career, so to speak, who's documented so much of that period so well that you must think, oh, thank God someone took a picture, some pictures. Because often people look back and go, oh, no, actually we've got no film of it. Damn, we'll never remember. Whereas this this has been very well documented and there was the film as well, which obviously we all had to go and watch as well. Mm. That's one of the biggest um, regrets I'll ever have, that I never um, took any pictures. Had we had phones like we have these days, uh, you know, I'd have been selfieing all the time. (laughs) We never did. I mean, uh, and tragically, I did have an 8mm camera. And when we were in Japan... um, uh, we were in, doing the gig in Tokyo, and I had the the camera. We were in the dressing rooms at the back, and Peter Hunsley and, and Willie pushed me round on a chair into David's dressing room, and he was doing his makeup and hair and everything. And I had the I had it all on film. He was laughing because it was like a I was on this metal chair being skidded round taking film, and I had that film, and I also filmed the opening of the set uh, when he ripped his garment off at the beginning of Ziggy Stardust. And, yes. um, uh, well, years later, we were living in Scotland and we were sorting out all my old films and all the rest of it. And all the rats went into one bag and all the good stuff in the other bag. And we threw the wrong bag away, my wife and I. Somewhere in the in Shield's tip, there is a bit of uh, unique film, <laughs> which was so sad. You know, it would have been great to have that now. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It kind of makes you feel a little bit like... Oh, oh. Yes, quite. Yes. So then, OK, so then, you know, obviously you had that moment and you were there to see it and had the sort of, you know, one of the most amazing moments in modern music, really, to see David Bowie announce that that was going to be the last ever gig he was going to do. Though we were a bit, well, I was only, I was quite young at the time, but obviously the crowd didn't realise it was just Ziggy Stardust, you know, he, David was going to go on. Then what happens with your career? Because obviously, as you said, you had the equipment and then, you know, you've got, 
your CV must be looking fantastic. So you're, you're right there with the explosion of kind of touring bands, really, aren't you? Well, that's right. I mean, he, he'd done all the young dudes for Mock the Hoople. And Mock the Hoople with Main Man as well. It was like loosely. So we went out uh, with with uh, Ian Hunter and the boys. Did their tour. Lou Reed, of course, who I'd met when David did Transformer with Mick Ronson, did all those tours uh, with um, Lou, Australia, Europe, America. And... Uh, yeah, that was a wonderful time, all that, you know. Yeah, and um, you, but you must have been seeing this kind of transformation because obviously you'd been right there in the 50s, which is quite unbelievable in the sense of, you know, like the, the skiffle period to the sort of the rise of uh, the Beatles, but then missed the psychedelic stuff, but then got the glam kind of world. And then this kind of other sort of 70s period, which went from the glam in, into sort of punk. So you, you managed to sort of straddle quite a few different musical genres here, didn't you? <laughs> Which was quite yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Are you know, you know my connection with punk? Well, I know that you've worked with people like The Stranglers and The Clash and The Vibrators, I believe. Vibrators. Yeah, I co-produced their first album. And I have been writing to... Johnny Walker, who does Sounds of the 70s, who, who begged me for a copy of my unique recording of that last ever gig at Hammersmith with Ziggy. He begged me, and I sent him one, free of charge. <laughs> and um, he, he, he just refused, he never replies or anything, um, asking him to play Baby Baby by the Vibrators. I went to see... Um, the, what was left of the vibrators? They did a gig in uh, Bogner, la, year before last, and when they played "Baby Baby," the audience went bonkers. It was only a small pub club, you know. But uh, I said to Johnny Walker, I said, you know, give it a spin, but he never replies. It's really rude. It's terrible, God. With your CV, that's that's kind of. I'm pleased that Tony Blackburn has some sort of style about him because, frankly, you know, that's, yeah. that's um, yes, you, you kind of expect some some sort of like uh, nod. I mean, it's not like you're some sort of chancer. It's like, look, this is what I. This is my CV, mate. You know, <laughs> you just play the songs. I've made them. <laughs> so how have, did... have you have you have you got a copy of the? Um... The Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars? The album? No, my recording. No. Would you like one of those? Oh, my God. Uh, um, yes. I mean, absolutely. Like, slightly speechless. Oh, please send me your address. I'll send you uh, my Shallow and Deeper album and a copy of the, of the recording made from my sound desk. Wow. Uh, it is unique. I mean, the comments on the on my website are amazing about it, you know, the sound. Yes. Yeah. Actually do the whole show, um, including the Jeff Beck spell and all the rest of it, you know. Blimey. Well, yes. I mean, that would just, <laughs> that would make 2021. I always give it a mention when it's on the radio. <laughs> I might get some orders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. No, I've got it. I, I mean, well, to be honest, David Bowie was, you know, the first single was Bowie, the first album. My first, and so he was kind of my first love. And then thus you kind of keep with that. And luckily, I mean, it could have been Gary Glitter. Let's face it, I was that age. But um, it was Bowie, and it was like, oh, wow, that's that's kind of a great kind of mental role model. Because I was talking to somebody the other day about Bowie saying, well, you know, the thing is, if he mentioned something like an artist, a book, another recording art, you know, musician, you would go and listen to it because it was, you know, like you thought, oh, it, it was like an education, let's face it. So, it, you know, he, he was very special. So it was your, your sort of experience of working with him, obviously, you, you know, as you said, with Tucky Buzzard and, and that kind of the tap on the shoulder with Angie helped produce what he became because frankly because I've done interviews with people who worked with him in the 60s like the drummer from is it John Lancaster who was in one of those bands and you know when you listen to David's work in the 60s you know it was it was not it was not going to challenge many other bands no, was it really not, no. <laughs> it wasn't it, it, it wasn't it, it just was a complete opening of a book Ziggy Stardust era yes. it just room and it was just you know like a god given thing it, you know I'm not saying I'm a genius but 
the mix that I got, the way the sound came over because of the theatrical side of things, and they were able to hear them. And we didn't have, we didn't have in those days, there were no onstage monitors to begin with. When we started touring, it, you know, David would come, you know, be able to walk forward and hear what was going on. It was it's difficult to explain, but um, gradually there were monitors and this sort of thing, so it, it, it came together. But foldback and all that wasn't really happening then, uh, right at the beginning, you know. Yes, absolutely. So it was a strange... It, it, it was this wonderful chemistry between us all, you know. You know, like, when you sing this bit, you know, it, it was just sort of a thing, you know, wonderful uh, togetherness um, of how to try and make it work. And it all became very enjoyable and everybody loved doing it. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and, and I mean, as we remember from those clips of the Beatles and hearing stories about how puny their amps were at that stage, you know, you, you know that the music industry, you know, that side of it, the sound, had to change so quickly and develop. So obviously, oh. you were one of those early pioneers of creating, um, yes, the the kind of basic hardware for people to be able to play live in front of huge you know huge crowds and um yeah tour because yeah. i mean it was um it was all relatively new in those days as well but uh yeah, it was it was good interesting so then i mean as you you know were working with people like Lou Reed i mean his 70s period and it was kind of interesting with david because he did 10 albums in 10 years and produced or helped produce the Transformer and Iggy Pop and relocated, did loads of tours. I mean, but there was a kind of, with Lou, there was a stage where his drug habit was kind of quite destructive. Did you, how did you kind of navigate some of those kind of periods where people were still... Well, now, people have asked me that before. Now, when we toured, when I toured with Lou, uh, it was all to um, promote his Sally Can't Dance album, which never really succeeded. Um, but it was the bet he had um, at the time was so 70s funk. It threw a completely different sound to Lou Reed. And Lou just danced the whole set. And to be absolutely honest, I've said this to many, many people, he was always absolutely on the ball. There might have been the odd joint smoke now and again and this sort of thing, but nothing heavy. I mean, he was every night dancing right the way through the set. And I mean, the, the last number, or number, rock and roll, uh, lasted for 12 minutes, usually down about 12 minutes. And he'll be stage booging the whole time. Um, <laughs> amazing. Excellent. And uh, it was absolutely, you know, in fact, I'm looking at a picture of him right now with uh, Patrick, the lighting engineer, and playing uh, slap hands you know, after the gigs, like bang, you know, yeah, and absolutely, I, I've there were I never saw any you know, falling about dodgy, you know. Yeah, I think that probably came a bit later when he was getting into his other slightly harder phase. But then you managed to slip into the world that was, I suppose, the the post kind of pub rock cried with the stranglers and then the clash who were once the 101 yeah, i didn't engineer the, i didn't engineer the stranglers i supplied all the equipment right for them i did the clash uh, engineered the clash um and of course uh, on a different type of note uh, the big star of the 70s david essex well quite um, which which was a different uh, kettle of fish a lot of very young girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it was kind of strange because actually some of his songs now sound quite sinister and quite, um, yeah, like Rock On is quite an interesting song to listen to. But oh, yeah. at the time, he was slightly put in the same sort of category as Leo Sayer. He was a nice guy, but it was quite a different thing. But David Essex, I mean, there were two films that came out in the early 70s that featured David Essex. And yeah. the first one had Ringo Starr. I think that will be the day or something like that. And they were absolutely oh. brilliant. And I never managed oh. to get hold of them since. But he was quite a fascinating character, really. He was. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was on the crest of a wave when we were touring with him. It was the height of his career, you know. Uh, we did Europe and uh, 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 Australia, Japan. 
and uh, the States. And, you know, the States didn't sell out <laughs> at all, but, um, but uh, in the UK, it was enormous, you know, a great hit. But I tell you, with support on the um, European stretch uh, was Russ Ballard. You know, Russ Ballard from Argent. Oh, yes. Yes. Russ Ballard. You know, um, since you've been gone, since you've been gone, you're out of my head, can't take it. Oh, yes. Richie Blackmore, remember? He put a band together. And they were doing, what were they promoting? Um, oh, I know Santana did it. Um, I can't remember the name of the track. But uh, we went to the States and did a <laughs> No, that's fine. No, I, I thought that might happen, but never mind. Yeah, so you, you were just talking about Russ Ballard and, and going Russ to the States. Russ Ballard, he, he was promoting a track winning, which, which um, Santana uh, did a version of. And uh, we did the bottom line in New York a couple of nights there. Uh, I never know why Russ Ballard, uh, I mean, he's threatening to go out on the road again uh, in his, what is, he must be in his early 70s now. Um, but absolutely amazing bloke, you know, and fantastic music. Um, I hope he does. Yes. I'd like to go and see him. Good old Ross Ballard, actually. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I haven't come across it. Then, yeah. So during the yeah, because then you'd done what, with Debbie Harry. Was this kind of was this with Blondie? With Blondie, yeah. yeah, yeah. We did her first tour um, when she came over here for the first time. Um, short and I wasn't. I wasn't doing the sound. She had an American engineer. We just supplied the kit, you know. Yeah, and did you sort of at that stage have that sense that the music scene was changing quite a lot at this this point? Mm, yeah, yeah, but I was going along with it, you know. But um, uh, but, you know, like I was just ending up in the office most of the time. I used to go out on the road now and again, um, but. As we got towards the end of the 70s, um, I wasn't going out so much, you know. I hadn't seen my kid, you know, it was getting ridiculous. <laughs> um, I couldn't tour anymore. I was getting fed up with touring, you know. But, uh, but then, uh, you remember the, remember a band called The Passions? The Passions, yes. Um, I'm in love with the German film Yes, star. yes, that was okay. the one, yeah. Well, okay. They booked me, um, or uh, they hired equipment and my crew to go out on tour of Europe to promote I'm in Love with the German Film Star and their album. And um, they, they, they were in Italy and they were in a theatre, setting up in a theatre and it caught fire. And the whole lot got burnt, all my equipment, everything, and it was a disaster. And then they'd never insured it, which was the deal, you know, that the artist always, management insured the, the gear while they were touring with it. And they hadn't. And they were penniless, so I got nothing. And that was that. So I knocked it on the head and said, that's it, you know. Blimey, that is kind of, that's a bit of a shock. You must hate it. It was. That must have been. Yeah, made... I tried. Hello? Yes, I said you must, you, yes, I mean, yeah, you must wonder, I mean, how much money was worth was that, by the way? Well, in old money back then, so 1970, um, 79, 78, 79, probably about, I don't know, 12,000 quids worth. So in today's money, I don't know, probably 60 60,000, 70,000, something like that. Yes. Of, of equipment. That's quite heartbreaking, isn't it? God. Yeah, it was. And they hadn't insured it. And uh, I, the only thing I got back was the mixer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that wasn't much good without the rest of it. <laughs> no, blimey. 
Jeez, you're crazy. I just remember that story about Fire on the Water by Deep Purple, which um, luckily, I don't know, I think it was just a fire on the water. Well, you know, somewhere, but it didn't actually yeah. seem to burn anyone's equipment down. But that was, uh, that was a bit of yeah. a different. So was that a moment that you thought, right, I'm going to walk away from the music industry, yeah. even though, because you'd been in it for well over two decades, which is quite a long period of time. And yeah. Yeah. And this is when you went then, up, you went up to Scotland. Yes, yes. My wife and I bought a guest house and went to Scotland, took the kids up with us. They, one was still at school and the other one got a job up there and we stayed up there for, I don't know, 10 years and then came back down south. And, um, uh, been pottering around doing various things down here and now totally retired I've got back into music and done my own album um and wish I'd done it all back then yes absolutely <laughs> it's a bit late. and it's just a bit a, late now yeah absolutely but just to say the hotel you bought was the one that was featured on 40 towers so it's just um so was that was that one that you just thought no no it was no 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 it wasn't on it wasn't featured on 40 towers oh so, we, our friends used to call it Faulty Towers because we were running it and it was all a bit of a joke. We had some wonderful parties and things because uh, all our mates would come up at New Year, Christmas and New Year, and we'd spend some very drunken days um, clay pigeon shooting and all this sort of thing. And it was, it was uh, definitely a... a a faulty town. <laughs> oh right! It just—I just saw this photograph, and I thought, God, that—that that really is the place. But then it's okay. You just refer to it as faulty town. But then you know, because I've once or twice used to watch the hotel inspector. You know, when I was a bit bored, and people who um, run hotels found it much harder than they expected. Did you feel like you went from the music industry pretty tough to the hotel industry? Actually, that makes the music industry it's seem very, quite straight. Yeah, yeah, we didn't. Uh... We didn't make any money, you know. It was just, uh, it, it was very hard work. And, uh, uh, you know, um, it, 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 it just didn't, it just didn't pay. I mean, our, our whole idea was we'd work like stink for the summer and go and spend the winter in, in Cape Town where my mother and sister and her husband would live, you know, which, where Marty and I and my wife had emigrated to when we first got married but it never worked out that way we just found we had to sit tight all winter and just had our mates up from south for fun parties you know <laughs> yes <laughs> that's amazing and did you i mean just kind of i know i mentioned him before but i mean when you know there was that exhibition at the vna david bowie is did you go along to that to have a sort of a look at that or the there was another one at the VNA about you know so you want a revolution and and because I suppose you were so much part of those stories I just wondered if you'd also sort of engaged and thought oh I'll have a look at this no I didn't I didn't do that no I no I'd left it you know <laughs> I'd rather just have the memories <laughs> yes no it was just the fact that you'd sort of um Yes, had played such a part on it of it. So that means that um, now, even though you're in your eighties, you're still making music. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, when I send uh, you send me your address, I'll send you a a track that I'm working on at the moment. Fantastic. This is what well, a track I wrote. I wrote in 1989 when I was in Scotland, and uh, I've reworked it. I dug it out during lockdown uh, last year and thought, I don't know, this sounds quite interesting. And I sent it to this guy, Johnny Justin Stewart, in Australia, who's a, who's a great fan of uh, Mick Ronson, the late Mick Ronson. And I've produced a couple of um, singles for him uh, over the years. And um, he's added his guitar to it. So we're doing a thing. I'm hoping to make a video as soon as we come out of lockdown. You have to see if you can spot the word COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Keeps it... Yeah. But it's called crises. I've got <laughs> you. It's good. It's good. And I was going to say, I mean, you've had a few reunions with the original band, The Presidents. Has that sort of yeah. felt quite an, in, um, enjoyable to sort of be able to process oh, some, yeah. of, some of what oh, happened? Oh, the, the, video, the video I did of She Said Yeah, that, that was fantastic because... Uh, Martin, the guitarist, was over on holiday from Australia when we found it had been released. So I got 
all the original band back together. Sadly, our bass player died in February 2020, last year. He, he passed away, but it's there for his grandchildren to see and they love it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. I mean, if you were able to say or could have given your sort of 18-year-old self sort of a few words of wisdom, I just wondered what what you would have said to them because obviously you've been in the, you've got this amazing sort of history of music and it's been part of your life for decades now. I mean, I just wondered if there was any kind of particular thing that you would have thought, yeah, definitely do that not sure or just you know focus on this or that i just wondered what that would be oh i looking back i would say you know, just think about the simple things and try and write your own song you know but today's music uh, david i really i sound like a real old boy but i really have to agree with so many of these videos you see on YouTube where it's saying that modern music is so much rubbish. It's all the same. And the algorithms are all the same. The rhythms are the same. It's all done. If I was talking to somebody young who wanted to get into music, I'd say, think about emotions, think about that, and try to make a song up that makes sense, you know. Yes, absolutely. And with your, you know, with that crew that you had, which has got that amazing photograph of you, George Underwood, you know, Peter and Bob. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. still, I mean, do you have any of those, do you still have connections with that those that crew from that yeah, period? Yeah, George Underwood, we, George Underwood, we email now and again. Peter Hunsley um, has, I think, moved to the States now. We were communicating, but he was very... He'd, he'd become very strange, shall we say. And dear old Bob C. passed away a, a few years ago um, from C. Factor Lighting. Um, so, you know, that was taken mad day. We all went out to, to a, um, a riding school <laughs> and we all jumped on horses and went galloping. <laughs> My God. That could have been risky. But anyway, you survived it, which is good. Well, I have to say, your your stories of of David, Angie and Tony, they're just amazing. And that period, because like I said, I mean, those tours in, in, in that, that particular period were just quite extraordinary, weren't they? I mean, they were quite relentless. And, um, oh, amazing. I know. And, and playing two shows, like I said, not David, I think he might have played in the 60s with one of those bands, you know, the, the many bands he had during that period. But he only played as himself in Norwich once but that was two nights and he stayed at a place um, a hotel just on the sort of edge of Norwich so yeah that must have been quite amazing seeing seeing is Hull, is Hull in Norwich is where Hull no that's on the other side isn't it yeah it's yeah. further north it is on the northeast coast it was um yeah. we're just kind of like that bump that sticks out towards the uh continent. I don't know where you are but, um, <laughs> I thought, yeah, Hull was just up there, isn't it? No, I think it's a bit, yeah, no, it's a bit more north. But it's just quite an extraordinary, i just thinking, you know, being able to sort of pull the band together for two shows on the same evening would have just probably finished most people off, especially because this is at the end of that very long two-year period as well. So that it, And you did play, actually, I did just have a look, you did play a lot of two shows on the same evening as well. Oh, yeah, on the inside cover, when you get the CD, if you open the cover, you can see the whole... Well, you've probably got the tour schedule there, but I've written it all down. So you can see the whole thing. Yes. And, well, you, uh, you'd gone from Edinburgh to Norwich to Romford to Brighton to Lewisham. Yeah, I mean, it was quite rock and roll, wasn't it? Oh, blimey, I know. <laughs> all in a Winnebago over here, that last tour was. <laughs> right, yes. And, and before that, I mean, what was the difference, just lastly, I mean, what was the difference between, say, doing the American part and doing the UK part? What did you find, which was, you know, if there was much difference, what it was? Um, well, obviously, in the States, we we were using um, Claire Brothers' uh, uh, PA company um, and... We had our own trucking, you know, people doing the trucking for us. So we, the crew, and the band um, just flew about everywhere or Greyhound bus if it was quite local, you know. So 
so it was um, all very relaxed. I mean, because they wouldn't fly, um, when we moved from the um, East Coast to the West Coast and we ended up in Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills Hotel, <laughs> we were there for 10 days before Bowie arrived with room service around the pool and all that, the crew and the band. It was just amazing. <laughs> yes, well, I can see you went from... St. Louis to Kansas, and then there was a gap for L.A., then San Francisco, Seattle. I mean, you really did cover the whole states. But the strange thing is that you did that tour, then went and did a quick little kind of few dates just before Christmas of the U.K., and then went back to America for February, and then Japan for April, and then the big tour throughout the summer almost until you got to Hammersmith when it was all over. So I can imagine by the end... My God, it's, it, I'm just so impressed that you managed to, you know, you were on that tour and you managed not to completely all go complete, you know, bonkers, really. Completely got it. No, no. As I said, it was, it's a, it was a one, it wasn't like, um, you know, the drug scene, rock and roll and all that. See, it was like a, like a job that, that, and the rewards were coming in through the, the joy of doing it and the excitement. It was, it was just a wonderful thing, David. I can't. Um... Well, I, I well I could. Well, we've seen those pictures of the fans who are sort of there at the back, you know, backstage or in the crowd. And because there wasn't one of those ones, people were just politely clapping and going, "Oh, is it time to go home yet?" I'm, I'm getting tired. It was like that was kind of the the mania, almost like the Beatle mania, the Rolling Stones mania. So having that every night must have felt, blimey, we're really on the zeitgeist here. Oh, oh yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Yes. Well, look, Robin, All right. thank you ever so much. Look, I'll drop you my email um, address. That'll be fantastic. Postal address, yeah, and I'll stick a little package in the post you. That's amazing. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And thank you again okay. for this time, because this has been amazing. Okay, thank well, you. I hope you put something together, yeah. God, oh, it'll be amazing. It'll be brilliant. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. That is the end of the interview. That's how you finish an interview with great, swift gusto or just fumbling. I prefer the fumbling bit. I love to leave those bits in. Anyway, look, that's a bit boring, isn't it? That was um, uh, the amazing Robin uh, Mayhew uh, talking about his life in music from the 19, oh, late 50s right through into the 80s. Fantastic. And also making music now. So uh, a massive thank you to Robin for giving me the interview. Um, and uh, so much appreciated. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. And also, I've done lots of interviews over the last few years. Uh, you'll find those all archived in Spotify land. Yes, indeed. iTunes and Podbean. C86 Show. There are lots of people from the Bowie period as well who'd worked with him featuring people like Earl Slick, uh, Mike Garson, Woody Woodmansey, and um, yes, many more, but I won't bore you now. Oh, George Underwood. <laughs> See, I am boring you. Anyway, look, I've got to go, and so have you. Have a great week. Stay safe.